We'll go ahead and uh, get started here. I switched gears. I don't have my usual Red Bull. I'm going with this Starbucks Double Shot Energy, which I've never had. Don't, don't shake this before you open it. Yeah, you should be in the front row. Okay, I'll, uh, no, it's not carbonated, but if you shake it a lot, it does pressurize a little bit. Not bad. Feel better? I, I, I'm going to. All right. Um, so, welcome back. Glad y'all are here. Have you ever kind of wondered sometimes how does God feel, you know, in this moment or because of this situation or anything? Um, I always kind of catch myself wondering, you know, what is, what could God be thinking about this right now? Um, and anyway, I, I think I got a sort of a glimpse my uh, Brinley, my oldest, wrote me a letter. She wrote me a letter. She wrote uh, Taryn a letter. She just wrote a bunch of people letters. And uh, this was, I don't know, a week or two ago. And I wanted to read you what she wrote me because um, it just made me feel good. It says, Dear Dad, thank you for keeping me safe every step I take and giving me courage to fight through every challenge that pops up, for helping me when I am hurt and everything you have done for us, fixing the car, mowing the grass, going to work, and getting the money we need. I just wanted to say thank you. Love, Brinley. And uh, anyway, so I read that. Terrence was was even better than that one. Um, I was like, that feels really good, you know, to to have your children express to you in some way, especially a way that you can keep how appreciative they are of what you do and what you've done. And uh, so, I you know, I, I do think that in many of the Psalms, um, I think God is very glorified, like touched in that same sort of sense, except for probably uh, even more than we could be as human parents. But um, Okay, got a little bit of trivia to start off this morning. And I, I would not have known any of these, and so you're going to guess, but uh, don't feel like you have to be 100% certain to make a guess, because I would not have known. Okay. Which gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, alludes or quotes Psalms the most? How many would say Matthew? One. How many? Oh, two. How many would say Mark? Luke? Few on Luke and John. Most say John. Uh, it's Matthew. Matthew quotes Psalms the most. Okay. And I have to give a little bit of caveat here. 
that I'm just counting like direct quotes and direct allusions, and if it spans multiple verses, I just count that as like one. Um, and so there's probably all sorts of different ways you could actually quantify and count, you know, how how many times in each book or what counts as one reference. But anyway, that's how I did it. It probably would change a little bit, but not too much. So Matthew uh, quotes and alludes to Psalms the most. Um, would you have any guesses as to why? I, I have a guess. It's just conjecture. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so he's writing to most likely Jewish audience, mostly Jewish audience. And so, yeah, they would have been very intimately familiar with the Psalms, right? And uh, so I, I just think that's really cool. And so Matthew is presenting Jesus as here is the, the perfect Jew, right? Um, anyway, okay, uh, let's see. Next question. Which New Testament book? Man. <laughs> That's my fault. There you go. Okay. Ta-da. How many times would you guess? Pretty close. More than 18. 25 plus-ish. 25 plus. Uh, okay. I hope I didn't write that. Yeah, good. All right. Now, Matthew's most, um, in the Gospels, Hebrews is the most book. Which New Testament author quotes Psalms the most? I would accept two different answers. Yes. That's why I would accept two different answers. So, John, when you count John and Revelation, is 36, depending on how you count it. Uh, Paul would be 32. So, John would beat Paul, but if Paul wrote Hebrews, then it's the most. Uh, Paul would have 57 plus references. Kind of interesting. Um, okay, I want to show you guys a quick video. Uh, this is the video that goes along with the poster that we passed out last week. And so, um, um, yeah, go with it. The Book of Psalms, it's a collection of 150 ancient Hebrew poems, songs, and prayers that come from all different periods in Israel's history. Many of these poems are connected with King David, 73, actually, and he was known as a poet and a harp player. But there are many different authors behind these poems. There's the poems of Asaph, or from the sons of Korah, and some are from other worship leaders in the temple. Even Solomon and Moses have their own poems, and nearly one-third of these are anonymous. Now, many of these poems came to be used by the choirs that sang in Israel's temple, but the Book of Psalms is actually not a hymn book. 
At some point in the period after Israel's exile to Babylon, these ancient poems were gathered together and intentionally arranged into the book of Psalms before us. And it has a very unique design and message that you're not going to notice unless you read it from beginning to end. Now, to see how the book of Psalms is designed, it's actually most helpful to start at the end. The book concludes with five poems of praise to the God of Israel, and each one begins and ends with the word hallelujah, which is Hebrew for a command to tell a group of people to praise Yah, which is short for the divine name Yahweh. Now, that's a really nice five-part arrangement, and it looks like someone's giving us a conclusion here to the book. So, it invites the question, does the book have any other signs of intentional design? If you pay attention to the headings of the poems, you'll notice that at five places, your Bible translators have the heading book one, book two, book three, four, and five at various points, and that these divide the book into five large sections. Now, the reason for this is that the final poem in each of those sections have a very similar ending that looks like an editorial edition. It reads something like, May the Lord, the God of Israel, be blessed forever and ever. Amen and amen. So the book has a conclusion. It has an internal organization into five main parts. And so the natural place to go from here is now the beginning to look for an introduction. And what do we find? Psalms 1 and 2, which stand outside of book 1 because most of the poems in book 1 are linked to David, except Psalms 1 and 2, which are anonymous. Psalm 1 celebrates how blessed the person is who meditates on the Torah, prayerfully reading it day and night and then obeying it. Now, the word Torah simply means teaching, and more specifically, it came to refer to the five books of Moses that begin the Old Testament. And here, actually, the word seems to be used with both meanings in mind, which explains why it has five main parts. The book of Psalms is being offered as a new Torah that will teach God's people the lifelong practice of prayer as they strive to obey God's commands given in the first Torah. Psalm 2 is a poetic reflection on God's promise to King David David from 2 Samuel chapter 7, that one day a messianic king would come and establish God's kingdom over the world, defeat evil and rebellion among the nations. Now Psalm 2 concludes by saying that all those who take refuge in the messianic king will be blessed, precisely the word used to open Psalm 1. And so together, these two poems tell us that the book of Psalms is designed to be the prayer book of God's people as they strive to be faithful to the commands of the Torah as they hope and wait for the future messianic kingdom. Now, with these two themes introduced, we can start to see how the smaller books have been designed as well around these two ideas. So, for example, book one has right at the center a collection of poems, Psalms 15 through 24, that opens and closes with a call to covenant faithfulness. And then, Psalm 16 to 18, we find a depiction of David as a model of this kind of faithfulness. So he calls out to God to deliver him, and God elevates him as king. Now, in the corresponding set of poems, Psalms 20 to 23, the David of the past has become an image of the messianic king of the future, who will also call out to God, he will be delivered, and then given a kingdom over the nations. And then right at the center of this collection is a poem, Psalm 19, dedicated to praising God for the Torah. So here we go. The two themes from Psalms 1 and 2 are bound together tightly here. Book 2 opens with two poems that are united in their hope for a future return to the temple in Zion. And this is an image closely associated with the hope of the Messianic kingdom. Then book 2 closes with a poem that depicts the future reign of the Messianic king over all of the nations. 
This poem's really amazing because it echoes all these other passages from the prophets about the messianic kingdom. And it concludes by saying that this king's reign will bring about the fulfillment of God's ancient promise to Abraham to bring God's blessing to all of the nations. Book three also concludes with a poem reflecting on God's promise to David, but this time in light of Israel's exile. So the poet remembers how God said he would never abandon the line of David. But now he's looking at Israel's rebellion and its result and destruction and exile and the downfall of the line of David. And so the poet ends by asking God to never forget his promise to David. Book four is designed to respond to this crisis of exile. So the opening poem returns us back to Israel's roots with a prayer of Moses. And he does what he did on Mount Sinai after the golden calf incident, which is to call upon God to show mercy. The center of book four is dominated by a group of poems that announce that the Lord, the God of Israel, reigns as the true king of the world, and that all creation, trees, mountains, rivers, are all summoned to celebrate that future day when God will bring his justice and kingdom over all the world. Book five opens with a series of poems that affirm that God hears the cries of his people and will one day send the future king to defeat evil and bring God's kingdom. This book also contains two larger collections, one called the Hollow and the other called the Songs of Ascents. Each one of these collections concludes with a poem about the future messianic kingdom. And these two collections together, they sustain the hope for a future Exodus-like act of God to redeem his people. And then, right between them is Psalm 119. It's the longest poem in the book. It's an alphabet poem. Each line begins with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it explores the wonder and the gift of the Torah as God's word to his people. So here we go. The themes from Psalm 1 and 2, Torah and Messiah, combine all together here in book 5, which brings us all the way back to that five-poem conclusion. In the center poem, Psalm 148, all creation is summoned to praise the God of Israel because he he has, quote, raised up a horn for his people. Now, the horn here, it's a metaphor of a bull's horn raised in victory. And this image echoes back to the same image used in Hannah's song for Samuel chapter 2, but also to the earlier Psalm 132. The horn is a symbol for the future messianic king and his victory over evil. It's a fitting conclusion to this amazing book. Now, here's one more thing that you are likely going to miss if you don't read this book in order. There's lots of different kinds of poems in the book of Psalms, but they all basically fall into two big categories, either poems of lament or poems of praise. Poems of lament express pain, confusion, and anger about how horrible the world is and how horrible the things are happening to the poet. And so these poems draw attention to what's wrong in the world, and they ask God to do something about it. There's a lot of these in the book, which tells us something important, that lament is an appropriate response to the evil that we see in our world. But what you'll notice is that lament poems predominate earlier in the book, in books one through three. But pay attention, because you'll see praise poems occasionally, too. Praise poems are poems of joy and celebration, and they draw attention to what's good in the world, and they retell stories of what God has done in our lives and thank God for it. In books four and five, you'll notice that praise poems come to outnumber lament poems, and it all culminates in that five-part hallelujah conclusion. So this shift from lament to praise, this is profound, and it tells us something about the nature of prayer. As we hope for the messianic kingdom, as the book teaches us to do, this will create 
tension for us as we look out on the tragic state of our world and of our lives. And so the Psalms teach us not to ignore the pain of our lives, but at the same time, biblical faith is forward-looking, looking to the promise of God's future messianic kingdom. And so Torah and Messiah, lament and praise, faith and hope, that's what the book of Psalms is all about. of stuff. Um, a lot of good information. A few things maybe that, uh, that I would change, but for the most part, it's, uh, it's a pretty good um, uh, detailed overview of, of what's going on and, and maybe why things were chosen in a, in a certain order and all that. Um, so question... I think you know that Psalms is the most quoted book in the New Testament. Uh, I wonder if you have any thoughts as to why Psalms is the most quoted book in the New Testament. Right. Yeah, it's what you think about the most, you know, that tends to be your worldview, like how things get framed, right? Events in your life and, and things like that. You start to see God in everything, right? When that's what your mind is on. That's when, uh, when every song on the radio is God, you know, especially like Jeff is saying, and that's a good point, when you only have 150 and we have thousands to choose from, um, those are going to get stuck in your, in your head pretty well, and that's a good thing. Um, when, I was, when I was in college, when Taryn and I were married, um, let's see, probably a year after we were married, uh, we went to Manhattan and I had just read this book. It was like a young adult's, um, uh, you know, fantasy type book. Uh, it's about Greek gods and that kind of thing. And it's set in the modern modern times, and a lot of it is in New York City. And so when I was there, you know, I had just read through this whole series, and you know, every time I saw a huge rock or something in Central Park, I was like, oh, in the book, they would say that that is like, you know, some sort of titan or something, and like everywhere we were going, every statue, I was, you know, I was just thinking about how would that book have incorporated it into, you know, its story, and uh, uh, a friend of mine who was going through a relationship, uh, uh, relationship, I don't know, issues, I guess, um, every, every time he would talk to me about them, what so what I listen to on the radio most is classic rock, and uh, I would just have classic rock lyrics come up in my head. So he would be telling me, you know, about the drama and stuff that's going on, and how uh, it's just consuming him. And I would say, Daniel, you can go your own way. 
Um, anyway, just funny things like that. Uh, so yesterday, something hit me, and it just kind of floored me a little bit, something I might not have connected before, uh, but I was sitting at uh, Joel and Haley's house last night uh, for dinner. We all went over there, and um, so y'all know that a couple of weeks ago, our transmission on the Suburban busted. We had to fix that, right? And... Um, uh, those aren't cheap to do. And, but before that, you remember about a month to two months ago, we had these uh, uh, hailstorms, right? And I had forgotten that we had coverage on that, uh, on hailstorms, because we had comprehensive uh, you know, insurance and all that. And uh, anyway, so I was... Real, I just realized yesterday that the uh, the transmission cost three thousand two hundred dollars to fix, and when uh, after we fixed that, so yesterday I went and uh, got like a quote for the insurance for how much they're going to pay me for the damage on the Subaru, which is hardly anything, and it's three thousand two hundred dollars, which I was like, that's pretty amazing. Um, Coincidence, maybe, or maybe, you know, God sort of used a hailstorm, maybe in a good way. I don't know. Um, uh, but when you are thinking about God all the time, maybe you see God in more things in your life. Um, that's, just, that's a weird example, but anyway. Okay, I want to uh, jump in here to John 5. Jesus tells them, uh, tells the Pharisees, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Skip to 45. Uh, But do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Uh, so my question for you is, uh, where did Moses write about Jesus? Can you think of an instance? Um, I came up with a list of a few things, but I mean these are these are uh, typologies, they're um, metaphors, right? But uh, the covenant with Abram, right, where uh, God, who's manifest in this smoking cauldron thing, goes through this dead, severed animal. And is, uh, you know, begins this covenant without Abram having to walk through it in a sense saying, uh, I am bearing the responsibility of this relationship, right? Uh, the sacrifice of Isaac uh, with, with uh, Abraham. You could say, uh, you know, Hebrews talks about the Sabbath or the promised land in a lot of ways uh, being sort of, uh, in a sense, tied to Christ, 
um, conquering the land, conquering the promised land, being like Jesus conquering over sin. Uh, we could not do it completely, and so Jesus has to come, and he has to conquer uh, completely for us. The Passover lamb as a sacrifice. Manna in the desert uh, is, in a way, uh, an allusion to what Christ does for us. Water in the rock. All right, how uh, Jesus is our living water, maybe. The snake lifted up in the desert on the staff, I think, is one of the most profound, uh, looking forward to Jesus' crucifixion. Crushing the serpent's head at the beginning of uh, Genesis, and you could say maybe the first prophecy of, um, uh, of Christ. The life, the whole life of Joseph, uh, really mirroring um, what Jesus is going to do and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and Moses even says, a prophet like me will come, will arise. And so that's maybe the most direct when he's actually referring to a future person that is going to come and deliver them in the same sense that Moses had delivered them from Egypt. Um, But most of them really are just kind of uh, their stories, right? And you grow up reading these stories, and if you're immersed in them, then you start to see how maybe they would fit together. Um, The Jews... They couldn't see it, right? They were looking still, they had a different worldview that had invaded their um, biblical worldview and tied it in with things that uh, were very worldly. And so uh, they, they couldn't see those things. And so Christ comes and says um, in Luke 24, he said to them, well, this is what he tells them uh, after he is. Uh, risen from the dead. He's with his disciples. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Um, Which seems like mostly a way of just saying the Old Testament. And not just a way of like, Here's, you know, it's not picking out, cherry picking a bunch of different, maybe little prophecies and saying, these little things concerned me, but rather saying, you know, that whole story that you base your life and your hope in, all of that, the whole thing is about me. Um, and so, I, anyway, I want to just jump in here to a couple of New Testament references to psalms um, and and just kind of see where that takes us a little bit. So just uh, some scriptures up here to go through. In Luke 20, Jesus says, What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Um, what, I, what I didn't realize until I think Jeff mentioned this a year or so ago is that most of Jesus' parables, most of them, have to do with, uh, with 
withholding the, um, um, uh, I guess, the, the promise to the Jews and saying this is now for everyone, not, not just you. Um, and so this is, this is one of the very poignant parables uh, where he does that. But the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So that, that is a reference to, let's see, Psalm 118, which is actually a reference to uh, in Isaiah, and I didn't have this up here, but uh, Isaiah 28. Uh, so this is what the Sovereign Lord says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. I will make justice the measuring line and righteous the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge. The lie and water will overflow your hiding place. Uh, your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the realm of the dead will not stand. Uh, so I don't know if you've ever read, you know, more, more than just seeing that footnote as a reference to Isaiah, looking at that in context and what he says, uh, this, this cornerstone is going to, uh, this foundation is going to accomplish. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the realm of the dead will not stand. Um, so I, I just think that that's really pretty amazing. But that that uh, prophecy, I guess you call it, gets even more immortalized in uh, uh, in Psalm one eighteen. Acts picks up the same thing, and Peter saying it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Uh, so let's just take a look at just the few verses where this is found in Psalm 118. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So if you look at Psalm 118 and just read the whole thing, it's a very lyrical um, sort of psalm, uh, much like a song would be. And so probably one of the ones that was probably a favorite for a lot of people just because how in a sense, repetitive it was. Uh, you read through it, and it really is very powerful. Um, and, and so it would make sense that they would all probably know this song, this psalm, very, very well in its entirety. And Jesus uses, um, uh, well, the psalmist uses that Isaiah reference, and then Jesus and the apostles use that psalm reference uh, as talking about him. And again, when, when your worldview is wrapped up uh, in that, then you begin to, to find it in, in all sort of different situations. Uh, so, so not only do the Psalms, I think, help us uh, you know, shape our response in times of trial and, and joy and everything else, but they also reveal something to us about, I think, the thoughts 
and the hearts, the hearts, heart, that Christ had, uh, that the Gospels maybe don't really fill in uh, explicitly, but when you go and you look at those Psalms, it kind of really fills in, I think, a lot of... Um, a lot of commentary maybe on this is what Jesus was feeling perhaps or thinking in that moment beyond just what the Gospels write about. Um, so one that we've talked about seems like several times in the past year or two, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, and a lot of people look at that as a reference to this weird theology that got wrapped up in it mixed with a couple other verses to suggest that God, seeing Jesus on the cross with the sin of the world, couldn't bear to look at him or be in relationship with him anymore, so turns his back and or something like that. Um, when you look at Psalm 22 in its entirety, you find that is not at all the case. Uh, in fact, uh, towards the middle uh, end of it, three quarters of the way through or so, it says God has not abandon me. And uh, so anyway, that's just one of the probably uh, most familiar examples. Uh, Psalm 41, even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. This is a Psalm of David. Any guesses um, on who he's talking about? know a name. It's a weird name. Uh, and I don't even know how to say it. Ahithophel? Ahith, <laughs> uh, kind of sounds like you have a lift, lisp when you're saying it. Um, and you go back into uh, Samuel and you can kind of read that story. But he was one of David's closest friends and, and uh, counselors. And uh, he ends up joining with Absalom, his son, in the rebellion against David. And uh, so not only has his son turned against him, but even one of his closest friends has turned against him. Um, and again, like we talked about, I think it was last week or, or maybe the week before, I referenced um, Bedouin hospitality in the Middle East. So David grew up in that in that culture in the shepherding you know sort of nomadic type of culture where if somebody comes to you and you share a meal with them in their tent or your tent you are like tied with that person and so this is this isn't just somebody who came to my house and ate with me this is supposed to be like uh, somebody who comes into your house into your uh, home and eats with you. That's a very symbolic, meaningful sort of thing. Um, and and so, anyway, he has uh, lifted his heel against me. So, uh, the, the, uh, the Gospels pick up this same thing, right? Where Jesus says, the one who dips his bread with me is the one who's going to betray me. Um, and so you kind of get this tie-in sort of psychologically to how Jesus maybe feels about it, conjecture, uh, with how David was feeling about his friend uh, betraying him. Interesting thing that happens, um, Ahithophel, after his 
his um, advice is not heeded by Absalom, goes out and kills himself. Same thing with Judas. He goes out and kills himself. Um, Okay, moving on here. Uh, But may you have mercy on me, Lord. Raise me up that I may repay them. I know that you are pleased. Oh, sorry, this is uh, continuing. I know that you are pleased with me, for my enemy does not triumph over me. Because of my integrity, you uphold me and set me in your presence forever. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. That is continuing Psalm uh, 41, which um, I think you could say is continuing this uh, prophetic message of what Christ is going to do. Last one here. Psalm 31, uh, into your hands I commit my spirit. And you know where that's from. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. Let's just read through a little bit uh, into what's going on here. I hate those who cling to worthless idols. As for me, I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your love, for you saw my affliction and knew the anguish of my soul. You have not given me into the hands of the enemy, but have set my feet in a spacious place. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. And you skip down a little bit. In my alarm, I said, I am cut off from your sight. And this is a very similar message to what Psalm 22 would say. Yet you heard my cry for mercy when I called to you for help. Uh, Mirroring, I think, Psalm 22, uh, you have not abandoned me, right? Um, Psalm 69, again, is one of these uh, very prophetic psalms when you read it in its entirety of... uh, uh, of Jesus and, and what he's, and what he's going to do. So let me just end with a quick question here. This is how that psalm ends, and I'd just be curious to get your thoughts on it. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and all that move in them, for God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Then people will settle there and possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell there. Uh, this is a, I mean, you don't have to um, parse this out too much to realize this is meant to be prophetic, you know, uh, as opposed to a lot of Psalms where the New Testament just kind of picks it out and says, hey, what do you know? That was talking about this, and it didn't even seem like it was supposed to be a prophecy. This seems like it is supposed to be a prophecy, uh, and yet, what happened, you know? Uh, so I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. How, uh, because a lot of the rest of Psalm 69 is fulfilled in Christ, and then it ends with this thing that, you know, we're not exactly Zionists or anything, um, but this would kind of lead us that direction unless we find some sort of way to frame uh, to frame this. So, I don't know, ideas? Yeah. The concept of Zion means 
Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You. Re I mean, you read Revelation, and it it seems we we probably should have I should have brought in some verses from Revelation to kind of uh, marry these verses with. Um, but yeah, I mean, you look at what the church um, is is supposed to be. You know, a, a city a city on a hill, right? Uh, light for the world, exactly what Jerusalem was meant to be, what Zion was meant to be, and yet could not fulfill and becomes fulfilled uh, through, through us, uh, through the church, through his people. So, um, all right, class is over. Thank you.